once they've determined what they really like, don't give up on it. Hi there, it's WAMC News Director Ian Pickus. And on this episode of the WAMC News Podcast, I'll turn things over to my colleague Jim Lavoulis, who had a special sit-down conversation with economist Hugh Johnson as part of our aging series. According to the U.S. Senate Special Committee on Aging, the number of Americans over the age of 55 in the labor force will reach 42 million in 2026, nearly a quarter of the nation's workforce. That's compared to fewer than 36 million in 2016. That data was compiled before the pandemic, involving a virus that has led to more serious complications and mortality when contracted by seniors. As part of our special series on aging, and to better understand how the pandemic and the reactions to it have impacted the economic outlook for older Americans, Jim Lavula sat down with a familiar voice on WAMC, Hugh Johnson, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer of Hugh Johnson Advisors in Albany. Well, Hugh, first off, just wanted to start. Has the COVID-19 pandemic, and specifically its health impacts, changed how you look at the economy? Well, yeah, it's changed a great deal of how we look at the economy. Of course, we, we, we try to quantify what the outcome's going to be, and, and we've seen some swings in the economy that we've, we've never experienced before. It's hard to even believe these numbers, but the contraction in the economy that we saw in the second quarter, which was 30% plus, and the expansion we're going to see as a recovery starts to take place in the third quarter, uh, that'll be about a 30% plus number. And going forward, the numbers are just extraordinarily large. That's one thing. And obviously, every step along the way, we're trying to ascertain or to, to figure out what consumers are going to do. Um, we, we know that their savings built up. We know that they're taking that savings down by spending. Many people, of course, don't have jobs, and so they're spending that money. Uh, we're trying to measure that, measure that carefully to have the so-called impact on the economy. We're on the basis of that, we, we, and I should say we and the government in Washington, are trying to determine if uh, more help should be on the way to, to consumers. Do we need more stimulus? You see that as, a, as very topical, very, very important. Uh, so we're, 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 you bet. I mean, the, the big factor, the, the number one variable that's driving everything we, we say and quantify, see, in the economy is driven by the pandemic. It's really creating, it's driving all our thinking about the economy. <clears throat> Setting the health impacts of it aside, have you ever seen anything as far reaching into the different sectors of the economy as this pandemic? No, th- this, is, this is something I haven't experienced. I think you have to really go back to, well, you have to go back to the, the Spanish flu in, uh, in 1918, 1919 to see anything that's uh, you know, even close or somewhat equivalent. You have to go back to the Second War. You don't see you don't see extremes like this. You never see extremes like this. You don't see growth rates and contractions in the economy of 30 percent plus. The most we usually get are something in the neighborhood of say one and a half to three and a half percent. So when you're going to move a 30 percent in the economy, you know it's extreme. And and the second factor, which is implied by your question, which is really important is that it, it, it affects different sectors of the economy differently. You and I both know that leisure and hospitality, airlines, uh, things of that sort have been seriously impacted. And I'm not talking just about output or the amount of business they're doing. I'm talking about employment in those industries. 
the swings we're getting in employment, for example, are just are, are really hard to uh, even fathom. You get a decline in the month of April of uh, 20 million plus, and then we start to recover it, and we recover about half of it in the remainder of the second quarter and in the third quarter. We're talking about extraordinarily big numbers, a 20 million plus uh, decline in non-farm payroll employment uh, when ordinarily we might get plus a 200,000, maybe minus 200,000 uh, employment gains or losses in any given month. So just imagine it, 20 million. And that's, of course, as a result of shutting down the economy. So I don't think you'll ever see, we've ever seen, I haven't ever seen, and I don't think, I hope I never do see it again, this kind of extreme in all of the economic variables that we monitor or watch every day. Has it changed uh, your financial advice that you give to clients? In a lot of ways, yes, it has, but it's in, in sort of strange ways that it has. Uh, I, I don't like to look at this as a, I don't like to look at silver linings when obviously we're living in such dark times. But there are silver linings, and, and the silver lining is simply this, is that I saw, and I'm not the only one that saw this, a very sharp decline in stock prices February through March of, of 2020. And stock prices got down to levels where we do a lot of uh, calculations, uh, extraordinarily undervalued, reflecting the extremes in the stock market reflected the extremes in the economy. And, and the market got down to be almost 40% undervalued as I do the numbers. Now, who knows if I was right or wrong, but it looked awfully cheap. So yes, you bet that affected me, and it's particularly affected me when I saw a lot of stimulus kicking in, not only stimulus from the federal government in Washington increasing payments to people that are unemployed, but also the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve did a great deal, obviously reducing short-term interest rates from 1.5% down to zero. Uh, so I saw the stimulus, I saw the uh, sharp decline in stock prices, and I looked at that combination and said to myself, and I think a lot of others said this, this looks, yes, it's, it's, it's a terrible situation, but it looks like there's opportunity here. And so uh, we, did, uh, we did become fairly positively inclined or positively dis, uh, positive on the stock market. And the stock market did start to, to start to recover. It started to recover. The question I get, Jim, almost every day is, how do you reconcile the performance of the stock market with the performance of this world of ours generally and the economy in particular? And the answer is stock buyers or good investors uh, are always looking ahead. They're never looking at the current state of affairs. And when they looked ahead and they saw the stimulus and they saw some of the signs that it would start to take hold, that it would actually end up in a recovery in the economy and earnings, they started to buy stocks. So the performance of the stock market, our advice to our clients was to maintain a meaningful allocation to equities despite the fact that this world of ours was so dismal. And that turned out the right thing. The stock market or investors collectively were right once again, and we are seeing that recovery. Now, generally speaking, and this was happening before the COVID-19 pandemic, people are working longer, well into their 60s, 70s, and yeah. beyond. Has that changed the financial advising industry? It's changed in this way is everybody is everybody that first of all, there's a, an awful lot of uncertainty. There's a lot, a lot of volatility. There are many questions and very few answers. And I'm not just referring, you know, there's obviously the election. There's the in, impact of the pandemic. We think we, we hear, think, talk about a second wave almost every day. 
we ask ourselves the question, is the second wave going to have as large an impact on the economy as we saw in March and April? Big question. Lots of other questions uh, to include what's going on in Europe, where we see a significant surge in the number of cases. Are we going to experience the same kind of thing? And it looks like we are, uh, a second wave in the U.S. So there, there are lots of questions and very little in the way of answers, and that's created that's caused the investors to call us, to talk to us, uh, elderly people, and ask, uh, am I on firm footing? Everybody's a little bit worried about whether they're going to have enough money to fund either their last working years or their retirement or you name it. They're very worried. Uh, they're very worried about what's going to be the impact of the election and tax policy, the impact of the pandemic and its impact on the economy on their investments. So they ask us to review it with them. In most cases, in most cases, they're a little bit less concerned, it's interesting, a little bit less concerned about the economy. I think we've, we've given them reason to be somewhat optimistic about prospects for the economy, not just for the third quarter that we've just been through, but for the fourth quarter in 2021 and 2022. Not just the economy either, it's earnings as well. And they seem to be fairly comfortable with that prospect or outcome uh, forecast. Even before the pandemic, looking at uh, those trends of people working uh, into their later years yeah. past the, the average uh, retirement age, 65-ish, mm -hmm. has that had any impact on the overall uh, financial advising industry? Yeah, it has, but it's, it's been in a, in a way, you've got to ask the question, why are they working so long? And a lot of them are working uh, longer because uh, they think they have to work longer. They have to work longer, work harder, get more money, build their nest egg, so to speak. So I see that a lot of times. Is they want to not only build their nest egg, but one of the you know, sort of big fears that I, I hear from a lot of clients is they say if they retire at the age of 65 or whatever it might be, uh, they're worried about, uh, first of all, they, they say to themselves, look, uh, the, the, the rates are now that I'm going to live a long, lot longer. I might live to be 90, maybe even a little bit older than 90 uh, in some fortunate cases. And, and they're, they're worried, first of all, do I have enough, a large enough nest egg? But they're also worried about becoming bored. What am I going to do? So they're starting to work longer. And first of all, in many cases, they work longer because they like what they're doing. In other cases, they work longer because, you know, they quite frankly don't want to be bored. They don't want to sit home and watch television. And I hear that all the time. So we do see people working longer. And of course, part of that working longer is building up nest eggs. And they pound away at us. Estate planning is a big part of our business now. It's become a bigger part of our business. It's not just advising individuals on what they should do with their portfolios, their stock and bond portfolios, how they should structure them given uh, their plans. But it's estate planning, which gets into a lot of very complex issues, particularly taxes. It's all become very complex, but clearly the focus of individuals. And again, they're working longer, and part of it is they don't want to be bored. Have you seen any indicators that people are deciding to cash in on their retirements, those nest eggs, now rather than waiting, having witnessed the devastating impacts of the pandemic? I think they're concerned about it. And I think I do see in many, in some cases, investors reducing their allocation equities because of the volatility of the equity markets. 
Not many cases, though, but I do see that in some cases that they're worried enough, both about the impact of the pandemic, which is so uncertain, but also the outcome of the election, as I mentioned, and the implications that that has for tax policy. I see investors, some changing their portfolios, but more specifically reducing their uh, percentage of the portfolio in equities or stocks. I see some of that, but for the most part, I don't see that. For the most part, I see investors are holding the line and again, recognizing something really important. And that is recognizing that the chances are, the odds are, and I agree with this, that the returns from stocks are gonna be meaningfully higher than the return for bonds. You know, uh, one thing that they do look at is they know that the level of interest rates now as engineered by the Federal Reserve is low. If you ask yourself the question, where can I get my best return for my stock market? Just a reasonable return, not a big return, uh, but uh, just a reasonable return. They say, I certainly can't get it from the bond market or the fixed income markets where rates are low. Maybe I got a chance if I buy some stocks. And they're taking the risk of buying some stocks, even accepting the fact that maybe, given all the volatility and uncertainty, my return from the stock market might be 5%, but that's higher than bonds. And so they take that risk, and that's part of the reason why we see the stock market doing so well. I hate to say it, but it might be the only game in town. So not that many people saying, wow, this is a terrible pandemic. Look at this. Uh, I'm getting up in years. I have this nest egg. Let's call it now. Let's just cash it out. Not that many people doing that. No, and I think a big part of that, Jim, a big part of the reasoning there is, is the fact that they know they're going to live a long, they're going to live longer and uh, they're going to need a much bigger nest egg in order to take them through those, those years. And so they want to continue to not only have their nest egg, but to continue to build that nest egg in preparation for, and I hope it's true of everybody, living a longer life. <laughs> uh, shifting gears a little bit, what mm -hmm. do you think Social Security will look like in, say, 20 oh, years? Boy. That's a tough one. Uh, it's clear that we're not on a positive pathway right now. It's clear that our liabilities are going to exceed our assets in our Social Security Trust Fund. Uh, it's clear that there are going to have to be some changes made. In the, and I can't really uh, guess because there have been so many proposals on, on changing Social, Social Security. Uh, my guess is we're going to have a retirement age. In, in, which is in responsive to changing demographics at the retirement age, which is going to be higher than 65. And uh, benefits are probably going to have to, unfortunately, be somewhat lower. Uh, contributions maybe offset that by contributions being increased, taxes, contributions are going to be uh, somewhat higher. Uh, something that um, I've thought about a lot, and, uh, and that is, you know, the way the trust fund is invested. It makes no sense. Um, I, I know that uh, deciding to in, invest in more adventurous, risky uh, financial assets is uh, not going to go much, not going to go far. But that's what should be done uh, in my judgment. And you just take a look at the long-term performance of various asset classes and you can see that uh, the performance of other asset classes, not bonds, not fixed income, not so, not, 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 not government bonds, is so much more impressive. Uh, I know there's bigger risk. I know it's not going anywhere politically, but that's one of the changes I would try to get some policymakers to at least think about, or even not even, a, you know, even just a small portion of it. And I think that would do a lot to help solve the problem, to tell you the truth, but unfortunately, I'm probably going to be a, 
lone voice drive <laughs> calling in the desert for some changes like that. And that's just because it is too too risky. Yeah, it's too risky, too volatile, and uh, everybody's afraid of it. Everybody will point to difficult periods in stock market history, bear markets, and every now and then there are bear markets, and every now and then those bear markets dissipate the size of holdings or the portfolio, and you bet they that's a, that's very problematic if it's the Social Security Trust Fund. But you kind of look at the long-term record, and the long-term record is extremely positive for the markets. It reflects a long-term positive outcome for the economy. The economy continues to grow, stops and starts along the way, and the markets continue to reflect that by going up with stops and starts along the way. It's the stops and starts uh, that, uh, unfortunately, unnerve policymakers, and that's why that idea or thought is going nowhere. Now, I'm using your words here, Hugh, because when I mentioned doing this interview, you said it sounds fitting considering your quote no spring chicken. (laughs) (laughs) That's for sure. (laughs) So for our listeners here, and I understand getting a little bit personal, how old are you, sir? I'm 80. And how long have you been working in the financial world? And to the the theme of my earlier questions, why have you kept on working? That's a really good question. I've been here, I've been working in the financial business since 1966, I think is when I started. But, you know, I grew up in a family that was in the finance business. Uh, my father was in the finance business. So I really would say I dated almost to the, the day I was born. Uh, but I'm over 50 years at this. And why am I con- continuing to do it? I need a job, Jim. Uh, and that's part of the reason. The, the other part of the reason is this is um, uh, it, it really goes back to something that uh, I, I, if you want to talk about my personal attitude towards it, one of the things I've loved in life is is philosophy. And I've loved, this This is really strange on my answer, unfortunately, is metaphysics. It's very complex. And it takes very com- a complex configuration of variables, and it puts it together in a nice, uh, consistent, uh, comprehensive way. And, and that's really what this business is a lot about. It's taking an extraordinarily complex set of variables and trying to understand these variables and understand how they work together and how they fit together and coming up with a, with a nice, uh, comprehensive, consistent conclusions on the basis of that. It's very challenging, but it's extraordinarily intriguing. Uh, it's, an in, it's, it's very interesting, and I think if there's anything that's kept me doing this, it's an ongoing interest in, this, in the subject itself. It's really, really fascinating to see how it works and to continue to try to understand it, to continue to try to to completely understand it when you know you're probably never going to completely understand it. But it's it's a fascinating industry, fascinating business. The other thing is um, is that you're able along the way to uh, help people. And I'll tell you, it's, it's, it's really gratifying uh, when, when – and we have this all the time. And I don't think it's because of anything special about me, but the markets have certainly helped for the last 10 years or so. But when you have people that are – going to realize their dreams, when you're going to help them realize their dreams, which is to retire, to have a a good life in retirement, uh, to be able to uh, afford to do all the things they want to do. I wish I could do it for everybody, but you can't do it for everybody. But for for the vast majority of clients that we have, we're able to accomplish things like that. And uh, and they're very, they're very happy. And to see their gratification has a real positive impact on me. So I would say positive impact on clients in a fascinating business. 
How long do you plan to keep on working then? <laughs> I gotta, if you have a coin, maybe I should take the coin out and flip it. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, there, let, let me just say it this way. Uh, there's a lot of young people coming along, and uh, a lot of young people coming along in our organization, and I fully expect that the young people are going to be uh, driving our organization uh, in the future, and they should have their chance. And uh, I, I don't want to use the expression, I'll step aside, let them have their chance. But, you know, the, the truth is uh, there comes a time in everybody's life when you have to, you, when I think you do have to step aside and let younger people who are as ambitious as you ever were and were certainly and are certainly these days bright as, as I ever was, and are informed, you know, that this, is, this business has become as interesting, but it's become very complex. And, uh, and I find that some of, the, uh, some of the things that are being done in the world of finance, some of the ways we're investing, all of the kind of different uh, asset classes, for example, uh, real assets, uh, private equity. I, we always talk about hedge funds. We talk about, uh, we talk about real estate. We talk about the number of different asset classes, things that are really interesting and challenging in this business. And so you, you've, you've really, you've got to have, a, you've got to be really very, very uh, well schooled. Uh, you've got to, you've got to spend a lot of time to learn all that. And quite frankly, some of those younger people really do understand it. The other thing I would mention, um, just in passing is the, uh, the importance of artificial intelligence and other technologies that are really progressive on what the way things are done in this business. Not just on the way you conduct your business, but on the way you invest. And it generates enormous interesting outcomes. Uh, and, and so you have, to be, you have to be far along in technology, you have to be far along in your understanding of the complexities of finance and the different asset classes. You have to have a lot of energy which means you have to be young. So there comes a time in my life, and I think others, that you have to sort of step aside and let those with the energy take the ball and run with it. And I think, so I'm not answering your question, but um, you get the idea. Has the pandemic at all changed your personal outlook as far as your uh, career goes? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, it's, uh, uh, you know, made me think much more about my family and uh, spending time with my family and uh, you know so I'm trying to find ways to do that um, yeah it's it it, it has um, uh, it's it's been a real curveball uh, frankly it's been a real curveball and something I didn't expect if you're talking about a departure from I've looked at financial market history since 1890 I've studied it very carefully as carefully as I can and I never well I didn't study there are three major pandemics in that period of time spanish flu i haven't i didn't spend enough time or focus enough on those periods of time i should have i didn't um so you know i wish i'd studied to continue to study that and um and learn more about it and this this has been this has been uh, you know we use the expression a bolt out of the blue you talk about a bolt out of the blue. This has been a bolt out of the blue. Totally unexpected and very difficult to deal with and led to a little bit of frustration. But interestingly enough, I think that the basic rules of cycles that I've watched since 1890 still holds and has been helpful in dealing with this one and very helpful in dealing with this one. So there are some so sort of timeless principles that do apply and uh, you just got to spend time and study them. But this one... This one's got its, its differences, and it's pretty darn important. You mentioned your family. Might I ask, uh, 
who's in who's in that family well, orbit? Well, there's my there's there's my wife and there's my daughter and my two grandchildren are twin boys out in San Francisco and that's 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 the bulk of it. But I've got lots of sisters and brothers and uh, they have their families and. You know, <laughs> probably the biggest difference now is we get together still, but we get together by Zoom. So uh, <laughs> it's a little bit different. Absolutely. I think, uh, yeah, a lot of family, friends, uh, co-workers are interacting that way now. Um, Hugh, in terms of life advice, what do you wish you knew earlier? Uh, what I wish I knew earlier, well... Um, I think I've, I'm, I'm happy with what I, I've known. Uh, I wish I'd, uh, you know, I just think there's just no end to the importance of, um, of, of education, uh, whether it's this business or any other uh, business. And so I, I continue to, I don't regret significantly because I did spend a lot of time uh, in, the, in the education, of, in my education. But I, I just don't think there's, I've spent enough time in it. I wish I'd spent more time studying and, and, and reading. I just never get enough. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, the, the other thing is, is um, you know, sometimes, especially in our earlier years, we spend a lot of time on our business or our work. Um, I, I think that, quite frankly, that was at the expense of my family life. And if there's anything I would say, uh, I wish I'd probably spent more time at home with the family and less time at work. I was pretty ambitious and I loved the business and I loved working at the business. But I think in some cases I spent too much time at it. I wish I'd spent more time with, the, with my family. Um, that's not a deep regret, but it is uh, something that if I would have changed anything, I might have changed that. Um, there are lots of other uh, occupations which I, gosh, I dreamed about and would have loved if I could afford the education like a lawyer. Um, but uh, uh, but they're, they're, you know, it's worked out really well. The, the, the thing that I'm very happy that I did do was to spend as much time working on a, uh, working on, a, I didn't finish my doctorate in philosophy, but working in philosophy and especially logic and in particular, uh, well, logic, metaphysics, epistemology, these are very esoteric titles, shall we say, but it was basically the study of philosophy which taught me how to think and you can apply some of the lessons you learned in philosophy to just about anything you do in life. And the importance of a liberal arts education. Uh, I'm one of these people that really is still, maybe it's old fashioned, but a believer, a big believer in a liberal arts education to go to college and to learn how to think, to take English, to take history, to take government, to take philosophy, to take mathematics, arithmetic. That stuff, those basic disciplines are so valuable. Uh, and, and a lot of people think you have to specialize. You have to study technology or computer science. You don't. And in fact, you, you not only don't, you don't miss the important stuff. Don't miss the important stuff that you get in English literature, philosophy, history, and I mentioned them. Uh, don't get that, miss that, because that's, that's important to the quality of your life as well as your ability to succeed. And you, there's plenty of time for graduate school and getting very get very disciplined and specific in graduate schools. But before you get to graduate school, a liberal arts education is extraordinarily valuable and I think almost indis indispensable. When we're talking to people, uh, prospects for coming to work with our company, I always listen, I wait. I want to hear about their liberal arts education and what they've learned, how they've become good critical thinkers, analytical and critical thinkers.
to me, to me, they're going to learn what we do in our business. I know they're going to learn it. But, but having that ability to do good, sound, critical thinking, I look for that. And you don't see it all the time, unfortunately, these days. Well, that education has certainly made talking with you interesting, Hugh, over the years. <laughs> you may have just answered it there, but financial or otherwise, you know, we've been talking a lot about uh, in this interview folks near retirement age or, or getting up there. But for someone in their 20s or 30s, what advice might you have uh, for, for them listening to this? Well, the first piece of advice, and I do give this advice to younger folks, is um, try the best you can to identify what you like. And one of the ways to do that is when you're going to school, college, uh, to pay attention to the courses you like and that you do well in. And that might be a clue as to the direction, general direction, you might want to go. If you're good at government, you get good grades and you enjoy government, maybe you want to go to law school. Who knows? It might be a clue. And the, and the one thing I would encourage every young student is to spend some time having an open mind and thinking about what they really like. Then, once they've determined what they really like, don't give up on it. And I can almost assure you that the first four or five years of your, uh, your employment, uh, or graduate school, but your employment certainly, uh, you're not gonna like it. Uh, you're gonna get the lowest <laughs> job on the totem pole, and you're probably gonna hate it, and you're gonna wanna change. Stick with it. Because in four or five years after you get through that initiated that sort of incubation period, you're going to learn, you're going to start to like it. And, and that happened to me. I was a member of the New York Stock Exchange. People would say, wow, isn't that wonderful? And I was a trader on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, but it was very, very clerical. And I didn't find it very inspiring. But in time, I understood how it all worked together. And it became fascinating. It became intriguing. And I started to really love it and it took off from there. So identify what you like, try your best to do that, stick with it for three, four, five years, give it a chance, and then, uh, and then, and then, and then see, what you, see what you wanna do, see what direction you wanna go in. Don't give up on it. Uh, you know, your passion in life, uh, you know. The other thing I would say is you won't get much in the way of good direction on way where you should go in life uh, from your, your parents. Remember, you're different. You're different from your parents. You're different from your father. You're different from your mother. And you're going to be different. You're a different person. And we recognize that uniqueness in what you choose to do in life. It may be something entirely different from what they have done or would uh, encourage. Pay attention to yourself. That's so, so extremely valuable. That's what I would tell young people. And I do tell young people that. Hugh Johnson is the Chairman and Chief Investment Officer for Hugh Johnson Advisors in Albany. Hugh, as always, thank you for your time. You're certainly welcome. Thanks. All right. Thanks to Jim Lavoulis for that interview with Hugh Johnson. That does it for this episode of the WAMC News Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe. Until next time, I'm Ian Pickus.